I Think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, please go to our webpage at ithinkthereforeifan.com. That's all one word. Click on the link that says donate and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. And as always, thank you very much for listening. Okay, spoiler warning time. Um, In this episode, we discuss Avengers Infinity War, various Marvel comics um, with the Thanos storylines, Doctor Strange, Don Quixote, Breaking Bad, A Christmas Carol, American Horror Story, Better Call Saul, and The House with a Clock in Its Walls. And Westworld, you've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking about an issue that I think is really interesting to a lot of people, and that is Thanos and his actions in Infinity War. Yeah, I haven't stopped thinking about Thanos since I saw Infinity War. Um, he's in my head, he's under my skin. You can't wait using to the Mind Stone on you. Yeah, perhaps. Can't wait to see how this all sort of gets resolved. I find that my students want to talk about it a lot too, so... Um... They bring it up in classes. So a fun topic to do today. So I thought we'd start with the, the question, or we'd start with getting clear on exactly what Thanos' motivations are. And so I did a little bit of research into the Thanos character. Uh, I haven't been much of a comic book reader, not, not necessarily by conscious choice. I just, that, that was never a direction that my life went in. Uh, and so I thought, I'm looking to see what happened in the comic books. Um, and maybe that'll give us a little bit of guidance, uh, a more detail into Thanos' motivations. But I found that his motivations in the movie are different from his motivations in the comic. Interesting. Uh, so in the comic, the short answer to the question, what were Thanos' motivations, is uh, to impress a girl. Gee, that's so, that's a new one. <laughs> right. So, uh, I learned that the character of Thanos was created by Jim Starlin, who came up. He actually came up with the idea while sitting in a college psychology classroom. Probably trying to impress a girl in the classroom. <laughs> like, look, look at this comic book character I just drew. <laughs> Apparently, Thanos has gotten bulkier and bulkier. That initially he was kind of a scrawny dude. So he's sitting in the psychology classroom, and the topic for that day is Freud, and in particular the Freudian concept of the death drive. So uh, in Freudian psychology, there's this death drive, the drive for uh, death and self-destruction that is constantly at odds with the drive to life. And Freud refers to the death drive as Thanatos, after a Greek mythological figure who represented death. And so that's where the name came from. Mm-hmm. Thanos, right? Um, and Thanos is frequently described as a nihilistic cosmic warlord who's obsessed with death, de- death and destruction. So, enter his romantic interest, Mistress Death. Okay. <laughs> so he's basically in love with death. So it's Mr. Death loves Mistress Mrs. Death, yeah. or Miss Death. Uh-huh. Yeah. But she's, I mean, she has more of a claim to the death title even than Thanos, because Mistress Death is the actual physical personification of death in this mm-hmm. universe. She's Kind of like the Grim Reaper. Yeah. So, yeah. so he's trying to impress impress a girl by wiping out half the population. That'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that girl in particular, I yeah. guess. <laughs> Girls love it when you do that. I, I, I know there's some personal experience. <laughs> so, yeah. So, the, so, as we know, the Marvel movies have been developing this Infinity Wars um, timeline for quite some time. For t- ten years at this point. Right, been, right. Bits and pieces of the Thanos storyline have been given to us in the various movies. Um, and, you know, Thanos is slowly working through the universe, getting the the Infinity Stones. And uh, after the introduction of Hela, played by Kate Blanchett in Thor Ragnarok, there was a lot of speculation that what 
what the Marvel movies would do is combine the character of Hela and the character of Mistress Death. Mm-hmm. Because Hela is the um, Asgardian character that's in charge of Hell. Mm-hmm. And so that that would be a good blending. And what what a great name too, right? <laughs> Mistress Hella Death. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. A wasted opportunity so, there, Marvel. So this blending would make sense. And so I watched a bunch of videos in the name of research mm-hmm. that were all sort. It's a work day. <laughs> that were predictions of what would happen in Infinity War that were made before Infinity War. And all the Marvel fans who are familiar with the comic books were predicting that they would introduce Mr. Death, and a lot of them were predicting that, that the Mr. Death would actually be Kate Blanchett as Hela. And, and it probably seemed kind of obvious at the time to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so just interestingly, later in this episode, we're going to listen to some predictions, and um, we'll, we'll hear the confidence, and, and we'll look back and see if, if they were right under these circumstances right. as well. So. Right. Uh, that'll be interesting to see. Um, and I guess it still could be the case that they do something with the Hela character because she, it's not clear that she can be killed. It's, it appeared in Thor Ragnarok as if she died, but it's not sure that she can, it's not clear that she can be killed. Mm-hmm. Right. And I guess they don't show it directly in Thor Ragnarok. So, uh, they could still bring her in, but as a motivating uh, character for Thanos's actions, that's no longer gonna cut it, right? Because they've they've revealed his motivations to be something much, in my opinion, much more compelling. And as I was looking at commentary on this, uh, uh, you know, often purists about the comic books will get ticked off when major plot points are changed. But I think uh, it, it appeared to me, at least, that a lot of the comic book fans were psyched about this change because the Thor became a more substantive character, or not Thor, excuse me, uh, Thanos. Thanos became a more substantive character. Um, but people were really shocked uh, mm-hmm. about this new motivation. And uh, it, it kind of turns the Thanos characters into a very odd protagonist style character. Right, right. Considerably more admirable. Right, because his motivations in Infinity War, as, as I'm sure listeners know, turn out to be uh, moral motivations. So I'm not saying that the, the act itself was moral. That's something we're going to discuss here. But at least from Thanos' perspective... Mm-hmm. He was doing something moral, which was observing this ceaseless suffering in the universe due to, to factors like resource depletion and overpopulation, climate change. Um, and he, th- he says, I'm going to end half the population. Just snap them out of existence. They won't experience any pain, uh, mm-hmm. but they'll just be fewer people. And so the suffering will end. Right. Moral motivations um, are also a good way to impress girls, right? Just in case some of our younger listeners who (laughs) haven't sort of figured out, um, you know, how do I get people to notice me? Um, Be really moral. Now, we'll we'll consider whether, you know, wiping out half the universe's population (laughs) is really moral. Um, But it's a start. (laughs) Uh, It's worth pointing out, too. I mean, I think that this kind of substantively changes Thanos as a character because as I mentioned people describe him as a nihilistic cosmic warlord but he's not a nihilist anymore so if how what we understand nihilism is is the rejection of meaning mm-hmm. right in the universe well um insofar as Thanos is motivated by values mm-hmm. he's not a nihilist anymore Right, right. I mean, he's actually motivated to make things better, and that involves some sort of take on what counts as better, right? It's, right. I mean, it's the whole world view. I think one reason that this question is so interesting to us, this question about the moral status of what Thanos does in Infinity War, is that it's not entirely hypothetical, mm-hmm. right? He's dealing with a problem, with a set of problems related to overpopulation, and um, resource depletion um, and suffering populations. And we, of course, uh, have the same problems right here on Earth, right? There are segments of the population that lack access to food, shelter, basic medical care, clean drinking water. Um, and, And these populations are in need of our assistance, but we don't in mass do anything to help them and so they die <laughs> right so uh it's an inter- so so we can recognize there's some similarities here um that, that thanos is dealing with the same types of problems that we encounter here on earth uh and 
it raises this question, are we essentially, through our inaction, doing the same thing that Thanos is doing? Um, is there a moral distinction between killing and allowing to die when you could do something about it? Right. So a, a lot of people, I think, have the intuition that, you know, killing because it's active is, is always worse um, than, than letting someone die, right? So if you stand by and do nothing, you're not as bad as if you've sort of actively done something, even if all that thing that you have to do, um, you know, to be an active participant in the killing is to snap your fingers, right? Mm-hmm. All of Thanos. Right. Yeah. Um, so the philosopher James Rachels, um, very good moral philosopher, has kind of an interesting thought experiment, right? So you're to imagine a couple of cases, right? So in in the first case, um, there's someone that that if they can kill their nephew, um, will inherit a substantial amount of money or something like that. Um, so they they go into where the nephew is, um, he's taking a bath, grabs his head, holds him underwater, drowns him. Kills him, right? Clearly, that's a bad thing. He killed this this kid to to get the child's estate, essentially. Um, in the second case, you're to imagine that the same two people involved, the same motivations. The person goes into the bathtub, but um, just before he's about to kill him, he notices that the the nephew slips, bangs his head, um, becomes unconscious, goes underwater, and it's apparent he's going to drown. Um, and so the uncle could rescue the child, um, but chooses not to. So um, in one case, we have a killing. In one case, we have a letting die. And they both seem morally reprehensible, right? He, I mean, he let this child die. His motivations were exactly the same. The consequences were the same in the second case. In the first case, he actively killed him. Um, but it, it's, if there is a moral difference there um, between the two actions... Um, it's not clear what it is, right? right? There are lots of instances of, of letting dies that, that might even, in fact, seem worse than, than killings. I'm thinking of, in particular, if we have any Breaking Bad fans out there, I, I think I'm remembering this scene caref- um, correctly. It's been a while. But the scene where uh, Jesse and his girlfriend have both done a bunch of heroin and Jesse's girlfriend is, starts to, sorry, but starts to throw up. And it's clear she's gonna um, she's gonna suffocate if, if and Walt's just sitting there watching it happen. He could turn her on her side. He could wake mm-hmm. Jesse. He could do something, but he just sits there and watches her die. Right, and he views her as a threat to their their business enterprise, right? Their their um, meth business. So right. he has motivation to allow her to die. It's not like he's just there minding his own business, being lazy, right? It's, it's an outcome that he's rooting for at right. that point. And throughout, you're sort of, at, at least at first in Breaking Bad, you're supposed to sort of think, here's this good guy in this bad situation, and he's he's doing what he can. And, and, and that scene, I know for me, that was a real turning point where I'm like, oh, this is a really bad dude that we're dealing with mm-hmm. now. So uh, it doesn't seem clear that there's a difference between, a moral difference between killing and letting die. And if that's the case, then we're really no different than Thanos. Right, right. We stand by and allow for all sorts of things. So you mentioned, um, you know, drinking water and things like that. It, you know, it's been over 1,100 days since they've had clean water in um, Flint, Michigan, right? Um, and some people are, are acting on it, but um, not very many, right? I mean, we're, we're a big country with a lot of people, and we could throw a lot of weight in that direction. Um, sure, and people will point out that you know, this is a this is basically. It's not that we're all evil. This is that we have a a basic problem psychologically in terms of being motivated. It's hard to control what you're motivated by, right? And things that are far away, things that are distant, uh, are less likely to mo- to motivate you. So if you if you encounter, say, somebody's, you know, you're walking down the hallway and somebody's having a heart attack or something, you might call them an ambulance or help them. Otherwise, help them, right? Because they're mm-hmm. right there. Um, but you're not going to do the same thing for someone super far away, and and people out of like, sight, out of mind. Right. People like Peter Singer uh, advocate that we okay, yeah, that may well be true about human psychology, but we're also reflective creatures that are capable of thinking about the fact that that's true and considering whether there's any moral justification for treating people far away as if they're less important, morally speaking. And so we should be able, through reflective processes, to override that psychological tendency. Right, right. 
We'll consider a number of different ethical approaches that you might take to this general problem, at least as it applies here on Earth. So to the overpopulation issues and resource depletion issues and even climate change issues that we experience here. Um, we can break these down into what we'll call uh, consequentialist-based approaches and rights-based approaches. Um, so I, I want to start with two common consequentialist approaches to, the, to this general problem or set of problems. One of the most popular uh, is advanced in Peter Singer's Famine, Affluence, and Morality. And there he makes a pretty bold claim, which is that we should all be doing way more about the reduction of famine than we currently are, both as individuals and on a governmental level. Um, he starts with the assumption that suffering and death due to lack of access to food, shelter, and medical care, and clean drinking water and so on, are, is bad, which I think that we can just all acknowledge. You'd have to be crazy to deny that. And then he has two different principles. He thinks we should be following at least what he calls the weak principle. But he at first advocates the strong principle, which says, if we can stop something bad from happening without giving up something of comparable moral significance, we ought morally to do it. Mm -hmm. But of course, that principle would entail a dramatic revision of how we live our lives, right? Because most of the things that we engage in, the material possessions that we try to obtain, the, um, the leisure activities that we do, um, most, of these, most of these things uh, are, are not morally comparable to keeping someone alive, right? right and right. so we'd be spending our resources up until the point where our basic needs are met and dedicating everything else to famine relief or, or disease reduction or any of the cluster of problems. Um, but he says, if, so that's going to be rough. Um, mm -hmm. to do for most it's going to be hard to motivate most people to do that right which doesn't speak against the theory other than right it's not a practical thing to endorse because it's just not going to happen yeah just the difficulty of its implementation people suck <laughs> including us let me be honest like yeah we don't donate enough yeah um, especially us <laughs> <laughs> um but so the weak principle is um if you can prevent something bad from happening without thereby giving up anything of moral importance, you ought morally to do it. So this principle is weaker because it doesn't say that you can't, say, buy your kid a birthday present or something like that if you mm -hmm. find that to be a morally important duty. Mm -hmm. um, but it says, okay, you know, instead of getting that soda out of the vending machine for a buck fifty, buy a malaria net. <laughs> right, right. right. So, so, uh, and so that, that's one kind of general um, approach focusing on consequences uh, another approach is the polar opposite approach. And I think this approach it more strongly resembles uh, what Thanos has in mind. And, and then I also think that the problems with this approach mirror the problems with Thanos's approach. So this is approach that's advocated by Garrett Hardin in his paper from, I think, 19, the early 1970s called Living on a Lifeboat. Mm -hmm. I met him a couple of times when I was in grad school. Uh, well, I've read some stuff about him that make me think, I don't know if I should be teaching Hardin anymore. Um, so apparently he's got some ties to white supremacy and stuff. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. We didn't talk about that when, when I met him. Yeah. So, and I think it's fairly obvious. Um, so so the, this paper, Living on a Lifeboat, is included in lots of ethics anthologies on the topic of poverty because it represents one extreme. So I, maybe we should even be hesitant to mention him here, but, you know, if you want to argue against a view, mm -hmm. you got to see it given, see it in the full light of day. Right. So... Lay uh, it out given its best spin and go after that. Right. So the, he's arguing against this conception. A lot of people um, put forward this metaphor that as inhabitants of Earth, we should adopt a, a, a spaceship ethic, essentially, mm -hmm. where we're all just being propelled through space on this rock together and, and we have obligations to take care of one another. Uh, and he instead wants to change the metaphor to that of a lifeboat mm -hmm. where the rich nations, I can think, I'm just, I, I can't help but think of Titanic here. Right. And it's morally problematic for all the same reasons, but uh, where the rich nations are, are drifting along on lifeboats and the, the world's poor are drowning in the water. Mm -hmm. And he says, okay, um, you're, you've got these lifeboats and they can hold 10 more people than they currently are holding. 
how, how do you make the decision about who to let in? Um, mm-hmm. He says, first, you could let everybody in, but then, of course, the lifeboat will sink. You could let 10 people in, but then there's no safety net. Um, and then the third approach is don't let anybody in. And that's actually his response. Right, don't right. let anybody in. So, yeah, I, I'd hate to hate to be a drowning person <laughs> with Garrett Hardin at the helm of the lifeboat. Right. I mean, a lot of his motivation is, um, you know, you you if you're nice in a lifeboat, um, everybody's going to be worse off for it. Mm-hmm. Um but it's an interesting view, right? Because you start with yourself being in the lifeboat, right? At no, no point mm-hmm. does he have you consider, mm-hmm. boy, am, am I going to need more of the resources than other people here? Am I taking up more space? Am I um, more apt to become ill and a drain on the group? Am I as good a rower as everybody outside? It's, am I as beneficial to the community as that guy that's drowning out there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a strange, you've got what you've got. Should you share with other people? Heck, no. They might. They it might lead to a worse state of affairs, right? But but you never consider under what circumstances would the group be stronger, even if that perhaps doesn't include me, right? Which sort of flies in the face of the more impartial type consequentialist views that that you know you normally associate with um, people like Peter Singer or John Stuart Mill, right? So. Uh, the general idea is more babies, more food, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the poor countries uh, double in population size faster than the rich countries. And so the idea here further is that um, you're going to have to, if, if say now that the, the metaphor is extended to what it's actually a metaphor for, which is, you know, giving food and resources to struggling countries to help deal with their problems, um, You've got these countries then that will be uh, that will have much larger populations, and you'll have to uh, prov- the, the problem will just be exacerbated. You'll just have to provide you'll have to figure out a way to provide even more resources, and then the, the, you're not teaching these countries how to learn from their mistakes, and so they're not going to be able to solve their own problems ever. Right? That's his general idea. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I'll just read you a little passage from this Living on a Lifeboat paper. He says, A demographic cycle of this sort obviously involves great suffering in the restrictive phase. Actually, let me uh, take a step back. So what he's actually advocating for is just let populations die out. Mm-hmm. So he's this is a Thanos-style move, right? Yeah, so, so it's very Ebenezer Scrooge. Yeah. Right? Eliminate the surplus population. Exactly. Yeah, good. yeah right. Uh So, he says, a demographic cycle of this sort obviously involves great suffering in the restrictive phase, but such a cycle is normal to any independent country with an inadequate population control. The third century theologian Tertullian expressed what must have been the recognition of many wise men when he wrote, the scourges of pestilence, famine, wars, and earthquakes have come to be regarded as a blessing to overcrowded nations since they serve to prune away the luxuriant growth of the human race. <laughs> so this really kind of fails to, to exhibit a lot of empathy for individual concrete suffering. Mm-hmm. And in this way, Thanos is, Thanos is a better dude than Garrett Hardin because at least Thanos is just snapping his finger. He's not asking people to slowly starve to death or die of disease. Right, right, right. And, and also he appreciates fine jewels and things like that. You know, Thanos <laughs> has a sort of keen aesthetic sense. And... For an ugly purple dude. Yeah, yeah, for an ugly purple dude. Okay, now we'll address the question of whether what Thanos did was morally defensible. I mentioned earlier that I would talk about some rights-based approaches. And I think really on any rights-based approach, what he did turned out to be terrible. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Most moral theories, most rights-based theories are committed to something like inherent worth of the individual. Mm -hmm. And so individuals, the lives can't be compared, they can't be used as part of a calculus. Right, right, right. And then there's just the the rights that you might point to, right? People's right to life, um, Mm -hmm violated there people's right to autonomy people's right to liberty right all these things are mm-hmm. are violated um when thanos snaps right so let's bring the conversation back to what we were saying about harden and his approach because i think thanos as i mentioned earlier thanos's approach thanos's way of viewing the the situation in the universe is similar to harden's way of viewing the situation here on earth 
The first thing that strikes me is if this would ever be morally justified, it could only be justified as an absolute last resort. And there's no evidence that Thanos has pursued any other options. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know... Or, or even investigated into it, right? right. Um, I mean, that pursuing the options would be one way of doing it. Um, but for example, you know, he could say, Hey, Dr. Strange. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you looked at all those possibilities. <laughs> any, any of these possibilities working out such that there are better solutions to overpopulation and scarcity of resources than killing half the people? Yeah. And I think, you know, Hardin is sort of short-sighted in his take, I think, on uh, what we can do to help the global poor. He acts as if there's only a handful of solutions, like a, a World Food Bank. When, I mean, what you'd have to take into account when dealing with the problems on Earth or universe-wide is that suffering has different causes in different cases. You can't paint it all with one brush. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the causes are political in nature. Sometimes you're dealing with diseases and epidemics. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right. Just a raw scarcity of resources. Right. right. People hoarding resources. Right. So the Peter Singer style approach to dealing with poverty would have us... And I think Singer often gets misrepresented by his critics. He's not just suggesting that we just hand everyone money. Although there are some interesting approaches, some, some studies being done on approaches... Uh, where people do just give individuals, people in poverty, money and see how they can manage to lift themselves out of, bad, of a bad situation. I, but, I would like to sign up for one of those studies. <laughs> I don't think we qualify. <clears throat> uh, Not that we don't need donors. Again, I think thereforeifan.com. Click on the tab that says donate and um, we'll treat it like a study. <laughs> or, do, or, or donate to... Fix malaria. That's good too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Your approaches. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, uh, diff- Thanos would have been obligated first to pursue some of these other options. What's causing suffering on this planet? What's causing suffering on that planet? It's a super fast and underinformed response that says, "Oh, I'll just snap my fingers and kill everybody." Right. Yeah. One one size. Fix all solutions rarely work, and especially, you know, when when the cases are as varied and vast as an entire galaxy full of of circumstances. Another way of thinking about whether Thanos has exhausted all the possible options here has to do with some of the ways that the the, the problem at the level of the universe would be different from the problem at the level of Earth, especially at you know because of the differences between uh, the level of technological advancement you see in the Marvel universe as compared to the level of technological advancement you see um, on Earth currently. Uh, And so what I have in mind is, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems to me that the Marvel universe is a place where people have developed technology that allows them to live on like a space station or, uh, you know, a spaceship for extended periods of time. And since the universe is infinite, it it seems like there couldn't you know there couldn't be space problems. Maybe right. there'd be resource problems, but mm-hmm. um, people could just occupy space. Right. But even even to be on a spaceship out in the middle of nowhere for a really long period of time requires that resources can't be that much of an issue, right? They, you can sort of make everything work out. Pretty easily with just a handful of stuff, some fuel and something that converts into food and all that. Right. So Water would be potentially yeah. an issue. But the, but the same thing, right? I mean, needing water, if, if you can be out there far away from water and manage to have water, then clearly they have way some to have means water. by which right. water's attainable. So, yeah. Right. So it's, it's hard to imagine that the problem really is as Thanos portrays it. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, so one final question. Maybe he just didn't want to admit that I'm doing it to impress a girl. Yeah. <laughs> so the whole thing. <laughs> well, they've a given us no hint of it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but it it could turn out to be the case that he is motive he he his motivations aren't entirely known even to himself, or he's just kind of he's got the right motivations, but he's just not very intelligent about the whole thing. But I I take it that that character is supposed to be pretty smart. Right, right. Um, Yeah, operating on a half-baked idea. 
But he might he might have the sense that, you know, because the, the way the character's portrayed initially in the comic books is that he's, you know, the reason why they have him in love with the personification of death is because he's just compelled toward in that direction, right? Death and destruction are his uh, middle name, so to speak. So, mm -hmm. you know, so, so maybe he thinks he's motivated by altruism. Um, he thinks he's motivated by ending suffering, but he's really at least partially motivated by his own pull toward death, which might uh, blind him to other ways of dealing with the situation. <laughs> right. He's got a bad case of letting his evil do the thinking. <laughs> so um, finally, one, one final question is if snap Thanos must, let's say, let's say that we say, okay, yeah, Thanos is, he's, he's morally obligated to snap. Well, I think he certainly isn't. Mm -hmm. Um, did he go about it in the right way by choosing to snap randomly? Yeah. Well, the, first of all, before we get to that, there's even the question of whether he did it randomly, right? So the, the last bit you see of him is they're looking all satisfied at his action, which mm -hmm. makes you think he wasn't part of the equation, right? That, there are some that, fan theories, though, that speculate that he's inside the Soul Stone now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so it could be. So if, if he's not inside the Soul, soul Stone and he snapped... Um, then he did it in such a way that um, he wasn't a potential victim of his snapping, which means it wasn't random at all. But let's let's put that aside and just say, let's assume it was a random process. Maybe one of the fan theories is right. Is that the best way? Yeah, and I, I think that it gets... I might be wrong about this because I haven't seen the movie in a little while, but um, I think it gets conveyed that the snap is random. Mm -hmm. uh, whether that turns out to be the case right yeah that's the suggestion yeah, right yeah. but but you're never there thinking wow maybe he'll just snap himself out of existence and yeah you know someone will come along and grab the gauntlet and you know unsnap and <laughs> do whatever needs to be done right right okay so yeah so he's um he's gonna snap randomly um what what's the likelihood of a random distribution of people eliminated mm -hmm. um would lead to the best possible state of affairs. Um, so, for example, if you were to snap um, and randomly get rid of um, you know fifty percent of everybody, but leave say one particular group, um, mm -hmm. maybe the the people that are most inventive or best able to solve complex problems, right? That likely seems like a, a better state of affairs. Yeah. Uh, right, I think that's true. And the other thing, I mean, some of the... So we are capable of producing enough food to feed everyone on this planet, right? We A lot of uh, countries or individual states have enacted laws prohibiting throwing away food, for example, because it's so wasteful, and yet people throw away food all the time. Um, and there's... But, so often, you know, our food uh, shortage issues or food scarcity issues are more distribution issues than there are anything else than they are anything else in, in many ways and and issues pertaining to power and class social class and so on um, so he snaps his fingers he he blips out fifty percent of the population uh, he's doing nothing in that snap that we've been told to ensure that 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 people don't still remain in their suffering situation so just consider <clears throat> he might snap and. Uh, still, there are people in third world countries just as poorly off as they ever were because the resource <laughs> distribution is the same as it ever was. Right. So I, people in first world countries essentially double what they have per person. Right. And the people that have nothing yeah. still have nothing. Right. Yeah. And and in the wake of 50% of the population dying, it's not going to be clear that the main motivation of the affluent countries is going to be to go help uh, uh, people in third world countries. Oh, yay. Now Thanos has snapped 50% of the population. Now we'll be willing to do our duty and help those who are suffering abroad. I mean, if we're not doing it now, there's no good reason to think that we'll do it after Thanos snaps his fingers. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I'm sort of reminded, you know, when I was in college, um, you know, I worked a series of odd jobs and money was kind of hard to come by. Um, so it was a, it was sort of a scarce resource. And every now and then I'd, I'd come into a little money, right? Um, was working as a busboy and I'd get a bunch of tips because it was Mother's Day. Um, I wouldn't instantly think, 
oh, things are better. Now I should use this opportunity to make things right. It's like, woohoo, I can go on this this sort of crazy spending spree for the next 36 hours. Um, there was considerably more beer, considerably better food involved. <laughs> yeah. I went from top ramen to hamburgers or something. Yeah. So I, I think there's like a kind of a parallel here, right? So the scenario you're describing, um, you just take one particular planet, um, you wipe out half the people. Coincidentally, it turns out it's half the wealthy people, half the poor people. Um, any of the wealthy people that were thinking, oh, population's a problem and wanted to put resources in that direction wouldn't be motivated to say, now we have enough for everybody. Right. If they didn't, if they weren't motivated to share before, they would be like me when I came across money in college. It's like, well, this is great. We don't have the population problem. And now we have twice what we have. Yeah. They're just going to live even higher on the high. Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And um, it's I think it's worth noting we are already in a position to help. Like nobody needs to snap their fingers. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to try it. Yeah. Didn't didn't <gasps> help. Oh, I was going to snap to help. Oh, OK. Yeah, okay. Not to hinder. Um, yeah, so uh, I don't think there's any real reason to think that Thanos' snap would be effective and he doesn't stick around to try to uh, fix what he's broken or to, or let's say that he hasn't broken anything. Um, mm-hmm. he, doesn't, he doesn't stay around in the aftermath of the destruction of these planets to sort of organize the attempts to spread the wealth around. Mm-hmm. Right, right. All right, let me play devil's advocate. So suppose that, that Thanos um, has found a way from his future to listen to this podcast. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that you said earlier about rights um, really spoke to him, right? So okay. he's thinking, oh, yeah, every person has inherent worth and it's, and it's inherent worth that can't be quantified. Is yeah. that an argument for going random um, in... In your snappage, um, well, it's an argument for not doing it at all. Yeah, um, but but if you're thinking we got to solve the problem somehow, so I don't want to take this more detailed approach where I find myself, I'm Thanos now, in the you know inenviable position of saying, okay, do we want to keep the lawyers or the accountants? Do we want to you know make decisions about which people um, are more meritorious or any of these other things? So we just say, fine, if, if this is if he believes this is the only way to solve it. Mm-hmm. Then we just do it randomly. Okay, I'm I'm getting stuck because he in this case he couldn't be a thoroughgoing believer that every life has inherent worth that is right. incomparable. Well, if he thought it was a last resort, right? I mean, there, there might be some scenario where you think, yeah, boy, everything has inherent worth, but we're going to lose all all lives if we don't okay. do something. Yeah, right? you know, it's a ticking time bomb type case or some such. I, I guess that could be an argument for randomizing. Yeah, uh, but. but but. Well, I don't know. If if you really feel like it must be done mm-hmm. um, because there is no other choice, then then it seems like you might also then be obligated to do it in the most effective way possible. Right. That, that's what I was thinking. That maybe the response is um, once you've gotten off your all life has inherent worth and started performing some sort of consequentialist calculus, you're then obligated to, to perform the calculus that will yield the best results. Yeah. Um, ensure the greatest likelihood of success or some such. Yeah. Okay, so we got to the bottom of it. Um, in case none of our viewers had noticed this when the movie was playing, Thanos, bad. He's a bad guy. He's <laughs> he, a villain. Yeah, he's, he's a very bad man. Do, do, not, do not be a Thanos. All right. Just to mix things up, um, we're going to do something a little bit different right now. Um, something, in one sense, not philosophical, but uh, kind of philosophical, um, but but fun. So, um, after watching Infinity War, I spent an inordinate amount of time sort of theorizing about what I thought might happen next, right, in, in the sequel. How are they going to get out of this mess? So, we thought it'd be fun to talk to some people who are... are Big Marvel fans, um, fans of the comic books, uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe, whole nine yards, and see what their theory is, right? Um, what they think will happen in Infinity War. So we talked to Tim Utley, Chelsea Barnard, Ken Altman, and Michael Funky. So let's um, let's see what their predictions are for the the sequel to Infinity War or the the follow up. So starting with um, Tim Utley. 
So how do I think Infinity War will progress in the next movie? Um, well, I know that the dead characters will not stay dead. So there's got to be something going on. Um, and it most likely or something to do with time travel, which we have a time stone um, option. We also have Ant-Man possibly. I've thought of using the quantum realm to maybe go back in time. He wasn't in the first movie, which was noteworthy. So I'm thinking he'll probably be in this movie. And Doctor Strange may have a way. Um, I also would say that new characters might play a part that are strong characters um, that haven't been a part yet. Captain Marvel is expected to be in this next one. And she is a very powerful character who could possibly take on Thanos. And um, I think some kind of converges, convergence with that, with Captain Marvel, um, going back in time, although I don't think you necessarily need to go back in time to save all the characters because they they may be in the Soul Stone because I believe they were killed with the Soul Stone. So if they are able to get the Soul Stone back from Thanos, I think those characters will, um, you know, come back to life. I would also add that it was relevant um, that Doc I found it relevant that Dr. Strange had looked at all the possibilities um, before he died in this one. And he claimed there was just one way that they would defeat Thanos, just that one way. And um, had something to do with Iron Man being alive. So, cause I believe he saved, he, he wanted Iron Man to live and he sacrificed his own life because he knew that that had some relevancy to it. So Iron Man plays an integral part as well. Um, other than that, I don't think I can get too specific, um, but all those things are going to come into play. Let's see what Chelsea Bernard had to say. So the really fascinating thing about the Marvel Universe that I really enjoy is that you have these different strengths and skill sets. Um, and so we're really used to being with Captain America or Iron Man or the Hulk or Thor, who their main skill set is strength and sheer willpower. Of course, Tony Stark is a little bit more cerebral and he's an inventor, but much of what he accomplishes is through demolishing things, right? So then we have this other side of that coin, which is Dr. Strange. And he is not operating in the regular world of brute strength or physics or demolishing things. He's operating on a different plane and he's operating through not only an astral plane, but a cerebral plane. And so I have always been a huge fan of Dr. Strange and I love him and I love his story arc. So I was really curious to see how he was going to play into this when I was watching Infinity War, because we're so used to things being solved by this brute strength or, you know, tactical measures like with Hawkeye or Black Widow. But now we have this new element that is we've seen Doctor Strange trick, you know, a, an astral god in his story arc. And so now we have Thanos trying to do something that is, you know, taking the time stone and all these different stones and essentially eliminating the universe, not through any, you know, demolition in the sense, but just by eliminating people with all of these spiritual, I guess you could say, or supernatural ways of eliminating people. So when I saw that he uh, went through the, like, you know, 14 million different scenarios or whatever, and there was only two where it would work out, we know that prior to this, when he's working out these 14 million different scenarios, he tells Tony Stark, I will never give up the time stone. I will die before I give up the time stone. And then after he runs through these scenarios, he realizes the only way for them to beat Thanos is for him to give Thanos the time stone. Um, and so then he does, and he does it only because he has to save Tony Stark's life. 
So, and we also know from the 1991 comic series that they're kind of basing Infinity War on that they don't beat Thanos in the end through any type of, you know, brute strength, but because they outsmart him. Um, and so it makes me feel like we know that Tony Stark is a key component in beating Thanos in the end. And we know that Doctor Strange has run through all of these scenarios and knows that he has to give up the time stone in order for Tony Stark to live to beat Thanos. So it makes me feel like the time stone has a really big significant role in how they will beat Thanos as if maybe if someone's able to get their hands on it and we don't know who that might be, they can turn back time to the point where they can outsmart Thanos. So that's kind of what I was thinking. Um, I, I know that those two are playing a big role, but obviously it was not fun to watch all of my favorite characters die. That was very upsetting. Here's Ken Altman's prediction. Well, Marvel, uh, the MCU has always kind of uh, followed a little bit of the comics, enough of them to make the fans really kind of excited, but also bring in people who haven't really followed the comics very carefully. But uh, I, in the comics, they definitely play a lot with time. And it seems pretty clear, especially when you have things like the uh, Time Stone uh, it, available as a possible option. And when you have Ant-Man, that seems to be trapped in an area where there seems to be options to be able to mess with time where he is, that it's very likely that one of the main things they're going to do is go back in time, at least the core group of Avengers that survived. That would be my suggestion. That would be what I would think was going to happen. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that the vast majority of the group that survived were the original Avengers that we started with. Uh, there's a few new ones because, you know, they don't want to make it too obvious, I think, but uh, they're definitely most likely going to go back in time, um, possibly even pretty far back uh, to try to find a way to be able to get this whole thing from happening in the first place, uh, maybe to prevent him from obtaining the Infinity Gauntlet originally. Um, that would be that would be what I would think was going to happen. And Captain Marvel is very likely going to be playing a very large role in that. Uh, whether she's, I don't believe that she necessarily has the power uh, to go back in time, but I think that she's going to end up leading the group uh, at one point or another. Uh, and I think that it's very possible that we may lose a couple of our core group in this uh, battle in this movie. I think this may be possibly the last time that we see maybe Captain America, possibly Iron Man. Um, and I think she may step up along with uh, maybe Black Panther. Uh, two very strong people that may step up in a leadership role for the Avengers for future movies and the series. Here's Michael Funky's prediction on what will happen in the sequel to Infinity War. Thanos parallels Don Quixote in that they both have the intention to do something good, whether to be chivalrous or to save the universe. And, and they both fail to look forward to the results of their action and the, the wrongness of intrinsic wrongness of their action, whether it's theft or murder. And in the end, you see Don Quixote sick and dying and realizing the error of his ways, giving up the code of chivalry, and it's the end of chivalry. You similarly, I think, are going to see Thanos at the end of the, the story reflecting on and realizing that the consequences of his action uh, were, were too severe and too serious, and that because he failed to consider the intrinsic wrongness of his act, uh, his actions were wrong in the first place. So I think he ends up giving up the Soul Stone and allowing all of these, uh, uh, the half of the universe that's been eradicated to be brought back to life. Okay, so um, what are we liking this week? Well, it's that time of year. It is that time of year. We're like an American Horror Story. Oh, yeah. Boy, we are loving American Horror Story. 
Um, which we always seem to do, right? There, there hasn't mm-hmm. been a season yet where we weren't just in some kind of heaven watching them, even though we, we don't think they're all sort of carrying equal weight. Okay, so this season the theme is apocalypse, and one of the things they're doing is bringing back characters from other seasons. Right? There's, they've alluded to that a little bit. Um, there's characters that, that have last names that are similar to other people with last names, and then there's one character in particular that makes an appearance in episode two from Murder House. Yeah, I one interesting thing is that I had seen, they, they, they put out promos, and a lot of the promos had said that this is going to be a um, crossover between Murder House and Coven. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of evidence of that. Like, you're right, they're br- bringing back characters, but only in a very limited way. Right. And I've seen zero evidence of Coven. Right, little little bits of Murder House, um, yeah. nothing. But we're only we're only two episodes in, mm-hmm. so we'll see. That those are sort of interesting ones to to cross. Um, I'd really like to see some characters from Asylum, and then some of those um, have made their way into other seasons as well. But um, yeah, there was. Um, what was it? Freak Show was the one mm-hmm. about the circus. Yeah, they had crossover characters on Asylum and yeah, a couple and, couple different ones. Yeah. Um, so we have made a decision about spoilers. Should we not say who's? Appeal? No, let's, let's way, not. Way too soon. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, we could issue a spoiler alert, but let's not. So just suffice to say. Um, it's starting off really good. The characters, um, it's a big ensemble cast, all fantastic, um, all creepy and weird. And, so far, uh, I'm and finding unique. to have like soap opera elements that some of the others didn't. Mm-hmm. It's one of those kind of almost Agatha Christie esque, everybody's trapped together in a space. Yeah, right. right. Uh, I the would... old dark house sort of conceit. Um, with a, with a twist. Um, I find that American Horror Story fans are... People couldn't hear me do those scare quotes that I uh-huh. just made. Um, <laughs> they're really finicky about the different seasons. Like, you see a promo for American Horror Story come out and then write it immediately in the comments. Uh, well, Murder House was great, but... Coven and Asylum or garbage, you know, it's like the people always have these very strong opinions about which seasons were awful and which ones were great. And I, I, I've enjoyed them all. Yeah, I encountered this um, a couple weeks ago. So I gave a, a talk at FanX, the um, Comic-Con in Salt Lake City. And um, American Horror Story came up in the Q&A and this one lady's comment basically um, wasn't a question. It was just... Boy, I hated Roanoke. I loved all the other ones. I, I just hated that. It, it was awful. My husband and I, we were watching and we were just like, why is this so bad? We couldn't stand it. And it's like, okay. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it really is like a very polarizing. It's never like, oh, I didn't care for that one much. It's always, I loved this one and this one was terrible. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, I what I see about all of them, whether you like where the storylines are going or not, is it's it's good art horror art right i mean it's they're using all the horror tropes and they're using them in very interesting ways and the show is um a good looking horror show Mm -hmm. you know it's it's almost uh good as a piece of art yeah so if you don't enjoy the storytelling sufficiently creepy in all the right sort of ways okay just a couple other things better call saul um that things that that are going on there that i really like is there's all these plot um twists and turns that are clearly pointing to the the point in the timeline where Walter White would have appeared in Breaking Bad, right? So um, Mike's getting to know Gus really well, and um, Kim looks like she's about to maybe make her exit, and um, so it's it's a it's a fun time to be watching Better Call Saul, uh, which is always great. Um, one other thing, we went and saw the house with a clock in its walls. Um, so we went to the movies and we took our little boy. Um, and that was a lot of fun um, for that kind of movie. It was um, Good so kids movie to good take kids your kids fair. to for Halloween. Very if charming. If I were them, I yeah. maybe even would have paused on the release for another four weeks or something until 
it was dead in the middle of a Halloween season. I think they maybe didn't want to come up against Goosebumps 2, which has a sort of yeah. similar look and feel. Yeah. Um, yeah, so um, it was a, a good week to be engaging pop culture. As the kids say, everything's coming up Charbonneau. This week's musing comes from Felicia. Felicia says, I finally finished the second season of Westworld, a futuristic HBO series where people can visit an amusement park to indulge in adventures, debauchery, and violence with beings of artificial consciousness. Without giving spoilers, I've been musing about whether there could be intrinsic harm done when we allow ourselves to act on our worst out, excuse me, act out our worst in- instincts, even when no extrinsic harm is being done. Setting aside the debate on whether robots in Westworld are capable of consciousness or not, is there value in inhibiting our propensity toward overindulgence and or violence? So, worth noting that one of our episodes this season is going to be on the topic of Westworld. Right. I've got a, a collection of essays that I edited with Josh Heater um, called Westworld and Philosophy. Um, and so later in October, we'll do an episode on that. So this is a great question. Uh, what I immediately thought uh, was a, um, this isn't a, a question that we're just encountering through our engagement with fiction, right? Um, so there are... Uh, you could you, you might think that this is a an issue with video games, maybe mm-hmm. violent video games. Um, certain kinds of I don't want to be too graphic, but there are certain kinds of robots that are right. being created that people interact with in certain ways. Um, wink, wink. Uh, and so I think that there's we we actually had an ethics bull case about this, ethics bull debate case about this uh, recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we can we can look at this in, in two ways. One is the way Felicia looked at it, which had to do with um, whether we do ourselves harm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, whether we somehow harm our own characters by practicing these abhorrent activities, right, even right. if we're not harming someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of that? Yeah. Um, well, these things are always sort of a balance for me. So... Um, Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Mm-hmm. It sort of just depends on the person, particular activities, um, the potentials there, I guess, is yeah. where I'd I kind of think that there are some activities where, you know, good people, people with developed moral characters wouldn't even want to, pr- want to pretend. Right, right. Right. Um, so certain sorts of non-consensual acts... Mm-hmm. I mean, even if the being isn't the kind of being that can give consent because it's a robot, um, you might think, I just don't even want to know what it might feel like. Right. To, I mean, right. It, the, the other side of it is, you know, there was a um, ethics book case appears back in you know, the Second Life case where, um, you know, in some cases people have certain urges that they want to act out on. They find a virtual way of doing that. It perhaps suppresses. That's the question. I mean, the the re, the resolution. Th- this is an empirical question. Yeah. Uh, and I don't. I but but you might think it's an empirical question that we ought not try to resolve because uh, if the answer turns out to be yes, this this ruins your moral character, or yes, this makes you more likely to commit these sorts of acts in the real world. Then what have we done? Well, yeah. Made it more likely that people are going to commit these sorts of acts in the real world. Right. Right. So. Uh, yeah, so then I think that there's a, um, I, I've already sort of said something about this, but I think there's a related problem, um, that is, do we have like an indirect duty, um, to these robots or what, Mm -hmm. insofar as, you know, we'll ultimately harm other people, uh, well, we do harm to other people by doing harm to them. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, so it's not just about our own moral characters, but about how then we're going to treat our fellow man or woman. Mm-hmm. Right. Good. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Felicia, for that, that interesting musing. Um, very well thought out. So um, that's a wrap. Episode three is in the can. And um, we'll be back next week with an episode on artificial intelligence. 
in pop culture. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you to our patrons who support us. Um, thanks to all of you for telling a friend and posting links to us on social media. And we'll see you next week.